1: Hi folks, and welcome to episode 18 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is show number 18, our question and answer show, the third one we've done so far. Um, Joining me is a panel which is small in number, but high in quality. Um, From my native country of Belgium, we have Stefan Lesage back with us. Hi, Stefan.
2: Hello, Bart. How are you doing?
1: I am doing very well. It was actually good weather here for the first time, well, this whole year, actually. So I did 20 miles on the bike, and I feel all... Good for having exercised.
2: Nice, nice. I stayed at home, even if it was uh, the weather was nice in Belgium, too. Yeah.
1: I forgot my camera, which was a mistake. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> uh, also with us, then, from the complete other side of Ireland, the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, we have uh, Conrad... Uh, oh, Sugar, I forgot to ask you how to say your name again. <laughs> Conrad is fine. Let me welcome you by saying
0: hui an avond.
1: Ah, okay. Ooh. Now I'm impressed. I'm officially impressed. Hu haten met jou? Okay, I I'm get really impressed now because your pronunciation is even good. <laughs> Thank you. How are you guys? We are good, and for the rest of the listeners, that's what Dutch sounds like—not double Dutch, single Dutch—the real stuff. Um, and then this is not Tech Forty Five, which is a podcast entirely in Dutch <laughs> that Stefan is often a guest on. Yeah. Um, so we should probably go into English. So these, this is a listener question show. So if you have any questions to submit as a listener, you can go to letstalkie talkie forward slash photo and submit your questions there. Uh, we have some questions submitted by about listeners and we're just going to go through them in order. And we, when we get to about an hour long show, we're going to stop. And uh, we may or may not get through all the questions, but, you know, keep sending them in and we'll do another Q&A show in a few months time. So the first question was sent in some time ago by listener, Tom. He says, I use Aperture. I would like to combine two or more photos into one JPEG or TIFF file to make a diptych or a triptych without any loss of quality, without any Adobe products. Uh, Any suggestions on how to do that? Thanks. Um, I guess the first thing to say is you're definitely going to have to leave Aperture to do it. But Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to go to Adobe because there are more than two photo editors in the world. Um, do you have a, who on the panel does diptychs or triptychs
2: well the first thing I would like to know is what, what exactly is a diptych or a triptych
1: Okay, a diptych is a fancy word for two photographs next to each other and a triptych oh. is a fancy word for three photographs next to each other so, so if you post on Flickr a single image made up of two images it's a diptych and a single image made up of three images is a triptych so you would usually have either a contrast or two different views of the same thing to make
2: a diptych or a triptych. It's not uh, just a collage of, of two different pictures? Yeah, it is, basically, yeah.
1: So a collage mm-hmm. of two is a diptych, a collage of three is a triptych. Okay. I guess a cryptic is probably four, but I'm guessing now.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't know.
1: No, that's, that's important to clarify. Um, I do it from time to time. Not very often I do it sometimes. Uh, do, you, do you ever do diptychs or triptychs, Stefan?
2: uh i know i've been searching for for a tool a while ago which uh, could help me make a collage of two or three or four pictures but uh i think i de- ended up with uh, with uh how was it called uh something like collage factory or uh, something like that and it it allows you to pick uh, three or four or more pictures and and combine them into one image yeah but uh, other than that i haven't really really done anything like that yet
1: and Conrad, uh,
0: I do, but I don't use Aperture, and I do it sometimes within Lightroom. Um, there is an option in the print module to to export pictures in uh, as JPEGs, and I also sometimes use uh, Pixelmator, which is uh, an equivalent to Adobe Photoshop on the Mac. Um, but I think I also, um, well, I don't use Aperture, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think I I googled a bit uh, before the show about the the question and I think there is actually a way to do it within Aperture um, in the book section but I'm not sure about
1: that well if you make a book you can get two things onto the one page but the question is how do you get it back out then because Apple very much if you make a book wants you to pay them to turn it into paper Mm -hmm. they don't really make it easy for you to print it yourself or get it as a JPEG. The print the print module is an interesting idea. I wonder if Aperture's print module could do that. But actually, I, I do it as well from time to time, and I I tend to actually I've actually found that one of the easiest tools, especially if you're doing more, if you're only doing two or three, something like Pixelmator is perfect. And I I should check in the App Store, but the price of Pixelmator has always been reasonable and has been getting more and more reasonable as time goes on. I know when I bought it, it was uh, 50 euro, but I don't think it's even that expensive anymore.
0: I think it's 20-something,
1: or around 30. Yeah,
2: I I thought it was something in the 20s.
1: Price, 29 euro and 99 cent. So, yeah, that's just about in the 20s, and I guess dollar-wise, that probably translates to 30 or maybe 25.
2: Yeah, something like that. 30, I think.
1: That mm-hmm. is a very very reasonable price, and it's it's not Photoshop, but it's really not a bad app. It's a, it's a lot more than Paint, like a lot more. Um,
0: yes, yeah, so I think it also uses. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not sure if Photoshop really uses uh, the GPU in, uh, in in your Mac, but Pixelmator really uses those. Um, extra power that your Mac has w- within the GPU, so I think it's it's a bit, it's a bit better than, than Adobe's uh, product.
1: Yeah, it's very mac so it, it doesn't exist on any other platform, and it uses all of Apple's APIs, so all of the stuff like Grand Central Dispatch, which lets it send tasks to the CPU and the GPU, and all of the cool stuff, it uses all of it, so it is very snappy, very pleasant to work with. And it does the whole iCloud thing, so you can start and edit on one computer and finish and edit somewhere else. Um... Yeah, so Pixelmator is nice. Now, strangely enough, I actually find that you often have more success with something like PowerPoint okay. when I arrange images. Because oh. with Pixelmator, any of these things, you you know, if two things are different pixel sizes, it's kind of hard to make them all match up and so forth. If you're in a... a in something that's designed for editing page layout, you could just pick up the corners of your different component images, resize them at will, rearrange them at will, throw a fancy board around them if you wish, and then when you're done, save it out to a JPEG. But that doesn't actually meet the criteria of not losing image quality because you most certainly will lose image quality. So it's swings and roundabouts in that one.
2: But if it's if it's only to make uh, a little, to put two or three pictures on... on on a page and to export that as a, as a new image, then there are probably a lot of uh, pretty cheap tools in the, in the App Store to do that. Maybe even free ones.
1: True. Um, I've tried a lot of different collage tools and I've hated all of them. Oh, you did? Yeah. I, 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 someday I will find one I like, but that day has not come yet. Now, for for two or three, they're usually fine, but after that, they usually make me cranky.
2: I've used one, uh, the, the one I was mentioning. I just opened it. Uh, it's called Collage Factory, and it's a free version. And I know I've, I've been using that a few times, uh, just to, to have a quick collage of three or, or four or five uh, pictures. And it was pretty easy to use, and free, if, if you don't buy the pro version. And I, I was able, uh, since uh, since you can access your uh, aperture library from the uh, fire browser, mm. there is always a tab uh, where you can have your media, your photos. And from there on, you can access your uh, Aperture libraries and drag and drop images into the, the application. So it's, it's it was pretty easy to use for me.
1: Okay. Um, if you just send me on the link, I'll pop it into the show notes. Okay. I'm just trying to see what it is I bought that I didn't like. Not that that's all that useful, but...
0: So, actually, to answer Tom's question, there was no way for him to to use Aperture to, to to create diptych and triptych pictures.
1: And certainly not without losing quality, because even if you can make sort of mush the print function into doing it, you're not going to get back out the same quality of image that you started with, because it's mm-hmm. going to be resized by the print module. Chapo yeah. 2, I think, is the one I was playing with.
2: I think that that might be a problem with all uh, with the tools since... Uh, you will end up with a with a uh, uh, how should I, a compressed image of, of, of the tree. You probably won't end up with the same resolution.
1: Yeah, unless you use something like Pixelmator and do them at full size and then save them yeah, at full size. Yeah. So I, I think, though, usually when you're doing a diptych or a triptych, you're targeting a certain output. And so as long as you have enough quality, you're okay. I don't think you necessarily need to save it all. As long as you don't delete the original images, of course, because then you're throwing away quality, and that would not be good. I hope that's at least some help, Tom. I'm not entirely sure it's as nice of an answer as you were hoping for. Uh, It would be great if someone just added a, you know, if Apple were to say developing aperture to make it better. And had like a little brick where you could say collage. But I'm afraid it doesn't exist. So I'm going to move us on to the second question. Um, From listener Ken. He says, greetings from Vermont. A question came up while looking to upgrade a lens. Uh, what is the operating temperature range for a lens? Specifically, since it does get cold, and I do take the camera, Pentax K3, out in the cold, zero degrees Fahrenheit, okay, that's cold. Um, the camera is rated to minus 10 Fahrenheit, but what about the lens? It's not about condensation when coming inside. I contacted Sigma and asked about their 1020 f4 to five six, and they came back with a low of 35F for the mo- with the comment, it will go beyond for short periods of time. I've checked Pentax lenses, and the specs do not specify a temperature range. Several Pentax blogs state use well below zero degrees, so I wonder if it, this might be a good thing to talk about. Many thanks for the show, Ken. Um, it's not an easy question to answer, because I'm pretty sure every lens is different. Um, but for what it's worth, my thoughts on it are that all lenses have moving parts... All moving parts need lubrication, so the reason you can't let your lens get too cold is because it will freeze whatever it is that's lubricating all the moving parts, and if you then try to move those moving parts, you'll just break things uh, because there won't be lubrication, so you'll have friction, and at best, you'll do; it'll just be horrible to operate at worst, you'll actually do damage. So I actually think all you can do is ask the lens manufacturer because it's going to entirely depend on which choice they made for which lubricant to put into their lens. And Conrad, given that you have ancestry in a North European country where it gets bloody cold, do you have any experiences of going out into the the freezing cold with camera equipment and how it's survived?
0: I do. Um, in fact, i I've never I was I never was afraid uh, about the lens getting too cold in freezing temperatures. Uh, I was always more afraid about the, the camera mm. and, of course, about the condensation. Uh, and what you said, I think it it's it's very it pinpoints very nicely uh, about the moving parts because every material uh, in cold temperatures it shrinks slightly and in yes. warm temperatures it expands. So I wouldn't uh, can I, I wouldn't worry uh, about that the temperature in terms of for for lens. Um, I would worry about temperature for for the camera. And when you go outside, I if if you feel any resistance when you when you uh, adjust the the zoom on your lens, or if you play with the focus in manual focus, if you feel any resistance, um, I think that's the point when it would be the safest. It would be to, to take your uh, your lens back inside or, or put it in the in the camera bag because that means that. Uh, the parts have shrunk enough to, to create some problems.
1: Or that the lubricant has, has gotten to basically started to freeze, and it'll have yeah. the same effect. Mm-hmm. So it basically, what you're saying is, as long as it feels like everything's moving smoothly, it sounds like everything's fine.
0: I would not worry about that. Absolutely not.
1: Now, of course, the thing is, if you have the camera set in full auto mode, you won't notice that it's not moving very smoothly because it'll be the camera's motor that's suffering instead of you. So maybe then the tip is to just flick it into manual for a second and make sure everything is loose and then flick it back.
0: Yeah, or just play with the, with the zoom a bit and from time yeah. to
1: time. Yeah, just make sure it feels... Because yeah, obviously your hands will feel if there's something not right, and if you feel something not right, stop. Yes. That's pretty simple advice, and I think actually probably what will die first is the battery, isn't it?
2: Oh yeah, that will probably go very fast, and if it's too cold, it probably goes faster.
0: Yeah, and, and and one other tip uh, in terms of battery, if you have a spare one with you, keep it in, uh, in your pocket, like a pocket that yeah. is in your trousers that is close to your body, so the bo- your body temperature will keep uh, the uh, the battery a bit warmer, yeah. uh, and therefore it will not lose uh, its capacity and power.
2: I think we've already mentioned this in, in previous episodes too, but uh, it might be very important to to be very careful when taking your uh, gear outside and inside. Put it in a bag. Don't uh, leave it out of your pocket and go inside, because otherwise you could you could get condensation on the inside, and, and it would be <laughs> terrible to get rid of that.
1: Yeah, that's actually so. In his question, Ken says that he he knows what to do about condensation, but I still think mm-hmm. it, it's we should talk about it because. You know, lots of people live in the cold and may may, and you don't even have to be that cold. I mean, y- you can create condensation even in Ireland and we don't get real cold. It's It's just if you make a big enough change in temperature, condensation will happen. And if people are wondering what the plastic bag does, it doesn't stop there being condensation. What it does is it makes the condensation happen on the bag and not on your lens. Because, you know, there is going to be condensation. So let it be on the bag because it's just a piece of plastic, and not in your lens because if you get it in your lens, you can get mold and all sorts of really unpleasant things going on in there. And yeah, there's no way to get it out. Of course, because you can't you can't really clean it.
0: You probably Unless you, you send to, it to an yeah, expensive to uh, service.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, yeah and they're going to have to then take all the really delicate pieces apart and then put them all back together very carefully. So I don't think it'll be cheap.
2: D- Does anyone actually know how expensive it would be to, to have a lens cleaned completely? Because I think I have uh, some, some, uh, uh, a lot of dust on one of my lenses. It's not on the camera, it's on the lens. So I, I, mm. I'm afraid to use it uh, again. So I was wondering if that would be very expensive to, to get it cleaned or not. Anyone has an idea?
0: I have no idea and I hope I will never have to find
1: out. <laughs> I, I'm with Conrad on this one. Yeah, I haven't done it. I paid to get a lens fixed once that I dropped. Mm-hmm. Actually, I dropped the camera and the lens. Well, I didn't. The tripod blew over. Uh, so the, 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 so basically, the whole lot went back to Nikon. Camera plus kit lens. Um. And Nikon charged me about 400 euro to service both. Ooh, that's a lot. It is a lot. It was only because I, I thought long and hard about whether I should just bite the bullet and buy a new camera. But actually, the D fifty one hundred was only about a year old at the time, and to replace it would cost me seven hundred. And I thought, okay, it's a brand new, ca- it's effectively a brand new camera, and I bit the bullet and I paid them. I think seventy five euro of that was for shipping, mm-hmm. and that it was three hundred and fifteen or something for the actual work. But nonetheless, that is what they charged, and that was for the lens and the camera.
2: Yeah, I think in my case, it would probably be be feasible to clean uh, the the glass on the, on the back of the lens because the dust is on there. But I'm I'm a bit afraid to put it on back on my camera now because if, if yeah, if the dust gets on my sensor, it it will be worse. Yeah,
0: I, I don't so know. So is, no, oh. is your dust in in the in the lens or just outside of the lens?
2: No, I think it's on the on the uh, on the glass on the on the yeah how should i call it the the side the side which goes on your camera i think uh some dust got in it while it was open the cap wasn't on it while changing the lenses so uh, i think something got in it it's it's some dust and i think uh i don't know what it is it might, might be some a hair or something
1: but it's is it, which side of the is it internal to the lens or is it on an outside surface
2: uh, it 's on an outside surface, I could probably clean it myself, but
1: uh <laughs> well, no! if you have a the little blowing brush, one of those little uh, squeezy things that 's probably the way to go about it because if it 's not inside it there 's probably no point in paying someone I suppose you could right, it's could clean it for you
2: it's well it's uh, it 's on the the glass uh, that's the, the, the not uh, not the front of the lens but the back where yeah. the side which know, connects to the camera
1: yeah that 's fine i mean there 's nothing you can damage there unless you like stick it in the washing machine or something.
2: Uh, yeah, but I was, I was thinking they might maybe, because someone told me, uh, don't go wiping it with, a, with a, a towel or something because there might be some some uh, yeah, well, maybe yeah. maybe some maybe lubricant or something on, on the glass and you, you would make smudges.
1: Well, wiping, you're better off not to wipe. You're always better off to blow. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they sell the little blowers. And if, you, if blowing doesn't work brushing is better than wiping.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then if all else fails, it's a lint-free cloth, which means so it's a really, really, really soft stuff. And as you're wiping, roll it forward so that there's always fresh cloth hitting the lens, and so that if you pick up a piece of dirt, imagine there's a speck of sand there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you're yeah, you rotating while you wipe, you're picking it up off the lens and around. If you just wipe, you're taking the piece of sand, and you're going... <coughs> Yeah, across yeah, your yeah. lens. And that's what you really, 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 really don't want to do. But I've cleaned the bottoms of all of my lenses and I have yet to break anything, and that's me touching a lot of wood.
2: Well, I might I might try that then.
1: Um there's a little I I, I must look up the name of them. There's little blowers that look like atomic bombs. They, they, like a cartoon bomb. Mm-hmm. And they're basically they, they have valves on them so that they don't suck, they only blow, and so you squeeze them and the air is sucked in the bottom and squeezed out the front. And that they're quite powerful, and they will usually get hair and things off your lenses okay.
0: and also uh I think it's i mean it's not an expensive gear, but what I got uh, in a pharmacy uh I have no idea how it's called, but it looks like a pair, and basically it does exactly the same thing like like the blower that uh that you just mentioned but it's it's much cheaper, and I think it's mainly used for when little kids have problems with cleaning their nose, it's, it's basically for cleaning the nose of small kids. And it what? does exactly the same thing.
1: For cleaning the nose of kids, I'm absolutely intrigued now. <laughs> I can take a picture and send it to you.
0: I have no idea how it's called, but it does the same thing. And it costs maybe like one tenth of that specific gear that is sold as designed for cleaning camera gear.
1: Yeah, the important thing is that it has a valve on it, so that the air is always going in the one way, and it doesn't end up sucking the dust into the blower and then just blowing it straight back out.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: Yeah. I can't. I'm looking at B&H photo, and I can't find the one I have. But there's lots of blowers. I'm just looking. I, I saw camera cleaning into Google, and I got lots and
2: lots and lots and lots and lots of different blowers from different people. I'll I just have to go to my local sh- local shop and and ask them. They but, uh, probably have something in in uh, in, in stock there.
1: That is the advantage of having a local physical camera shop. It's, it's a luxury I don't have, and I miss. Mm. The, the one thing I have never, ever, ever had the courage to do is to clean my sensor.
2: Nah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> I there wouldn't
1: are people who do it themselves, and there are lots and lots and lots of kits here. I'm scrolling through the B&H photo site, and there are more kits for cleaning sensors than, the, than I've had hot breakfasts.
0: But I've done it myself so many times and really there is nothing to worry about. Really? Really, believe me. And I've done a stupid thing with... Um, here in the US, they have this um, uh, can's uh, air. Basically, it's, mm. it's a condensed air in, in, in a can. But it's a, some, it's a chemical that is liquid and it's very cold. And if you press it under a weird angle, this cold liquid just goes out instead of the air. <laughs> yeah! Ooh. And I used it on the directly on the sensor, and of course, yes, and exactly, that was my reaction, and guess what? Nothing happened to the sensor with that. Um, so
1: They are covered, like, you know, there are protective layers over the sensor, and I know in theory it's all fine, but it still scares me. Mm. But, uh, that's actually one of the advantages of having dropped my camera and having it have to go back to nikon is the sensor got really well cleaned
2: oh yeah probably
1: (laughs) but then again for that amount of money that's not a very efficient way of cleaning one sensor so anyway yeah i can't find the link to the really cool blower i have that's in the shape of a a cartoon bomb but it has like fins and everything on it but uh, any blower will do as long as it has a valve that's that's the important thing
0: I found the name of the one I, I, I told you about. Yeah. I think it's called Newborn Nose Nasal Aspirator Squeeze
1: Bulb. What a name. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to stick the link in the show notes or into the, into the Skype chat and I'll pop it into the show notes? <laughs> sure. That's, that's quite something. <laughs> aspirator. That sounds good. Um, okay, so we've gone slightly away, it's not the off topic, but basically just to, to wrap it up for, for Ken, I would say that as long as the lens doesn't feel like bits aren't moving freely, you're probably fine. And if you do break it, sorry, it's not my fault. Um, I, yeah, I guess the manufacturer, I, I mean, that's sort of in line actually with what Sigma said. You know, Oh yeah, officially 37, but it'll be way better than that. Okay, thanks, that's useful. Uh, let us move on to a question from a wonderful lady called Alison Sheridan you may have heard of um, mm-hmm. Alison has been a guest here a few times and she also went over to our Google Plus community to post a question which is a good excuse for me to plug the Google Plus community which I don't do nearly enough um, we have a Google Plus community if you go to let's talkie you'll see a G Plus icon in the menu bar if you click on that it'll take you to our Google Plus community I hope I'm just clicking it now and yes it does okay good it works Um, And over there, I I will post up whenever there's a show on, which is not really the interesting part. But basically, any listener is free to ask questions, make comments, give us feedback on the show. Just take part in the community. And, of course, post questions, which we can then answer on future question answer shows. So anyway, Alison posted the question. I'll put the link in the show notes because she does also include a few photographs in her question. Um, So... What she says is, I'd like to see you guys talk on LTP about how to shoot flowers, by which she means photograph as opposed to kill with lead. Um, I love to shoot flowers. (laughs) I have this image of Alison with a blunderbuss now. Um, I love to shoot (laughs) flowers, and once in a while I get it right, something I would consider flicker-worthy. However, I need more insight into how to compose the photos. Mark Pauly shoots uh, the same tulips as all the other people in the field, but his photos somehow grab me more than anyone else's. And then she says, here's a specific example. In California, we have these really dramatic flowers called Birds of Paradise. I've taken hundreds of photos of them, and for the life of me, can't find an angle, lighting, composition that really shows them off. Um, I've given them room to look into. They look like birds. I've gotten sunsets behind them. I've tried a shallow depth of field, looking down the nose at them. I even got dewdrops on them once, and I'm still not happy. So... What do we think about photographing flowers? Um, actually, before we go into detail, so I do this from time to time. Um, Conrad, do, do you shoot flowers often with the camera? Not, not often, just occasionally. Just occasionally? And Stefan?
2: Uh, same thing, occasionally, Stéphane. not a lot.
1: Not a lot. Okay. Um, I suppose the first thing I would say is that not all flowers are the same. The flowers range in size from a couple of millimeters across to sunflowers probably bigger too so I guess your mileage may vary um, when, when anyone here on the, on the panel does shoot flowers do you use a macro lens or do you just use regular, regular lenses uh,
2: I don't think I have a specific macro lens so uh, I'm, I'm using my regular lens
0: I actually I, I uh, whenever I, I shoot uh, flowers I take my little Nikon P7800 and I turn the macro mode um, so, I don't have a specific uh, macro lens for that, but I use the macro mode in, in the camera.
1: Okay, so the, I, I'm not very good with my model numbers. Is that a point and shoot camera, or what is that? It
0: is a point and shoot. Yes.
1: Okay, so effective. Okay, and then when you flick it in macro mode, it will let you focus very close. Yes. And uh, how close are we talking? Like centimeters?
0: We talk about five, six centimeters.
2: Wow. Okay, that's close. That's close, yeah. Yeah,
1: It's very close. Um, I I remember early on when I was getting into digital photography, I asked a a friend of mine who had been shooting for years, I said, I'm thinking of buying a macro lens. I want to shoot flowers. And he said, don't waste your money. That's what he said to me. He said, stand back and zoom in. (laughs) Which is great advice that I've actually kept to all along. So what I use for all of my flower macros is... a. my eighteen to three no eighteen to two fifty millimeter lens, which is a sigma lens, which has the advantage that its closest focus distance is thirty centimeters. Now thirty centimeters is a lot further away than six, but at two hundred and fifty millimeters with a crop factor of one point five, that's actually very close indeed. And so, you know, you have ten megapixels so you can even crop a bit afterwards. Thirty centimeters away, two hundred and fifty millimeter crop factor one point five, and then crop the ten megapixel image afterwards. You can get some very macro shots, even though you don't actually own an officially macro lens. I mean, the eighteen to two hundred and fifty is an absolute workhorse of a lens. Everything from landscapes to well, anything really. Um, I think though, if where you kind of run into problems is like. We're used to thinking that depth of field comes into play when you have like, really low F numbers. Like F2, we all know, is going to be really shallow depth of field. But the thing is, it's not only F number that determines depth of field. It's no. uh, four factors, if memory serves. It's F number. That's the easy one. It's how close you are to the thing you're taking a picture of. The closer you get, the shallower the depth of field gets. So macro means you're going close. There's problem number one. Uh, It's also the amount of millimetres of your lens, so your stand-back-and-zoom-in approach also kills you there because you're now zooming in a lot, so that cuts your depth of field down as well, and also the size of your sensor. So if you have a big full-frame sensor, your depth of field is actually smaller than if you have a small crop-factor sensor. And so actually, a micro four-thirds is probably easier to get a good depth of field up close than it is with a full-frame sensor. And... When I say that your depth of field starts to get small, I did the calculation for... So my 250mm lens at 30cm away, at f8, which does not sound like a, low, like, you know, like a shallow depth of field, at f8, the depth of field I get is 2mm. And I can get that up to 3 or 4 by going to f11. But at f11, when you're zoomed in that much, you need a lot of light. And so actually, bizarrely and weirdly, you're actually fighting with a depth of field problem, even though you probably wouldn't think you would be at f11.
2: I think that's probably why I, and, and, uh, when I w- started doing that, I, I tried it with my, uh, my zoom lens too, but uh, the slightest wind you get, gets mm. uh, your images completely out of focus.
1: Yes. Yeah, because if your depth of field is two millimeter and the wind yeah. blows whatever it is, three millimeter, that's it, you're gone. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that your depth of field is flat right? You have a plane in front of the image plane. And so if you take the same daisy and shoot straight down on it, those two millimeters are enough to get the center and the petals in focus. Mm -hmm. But if you're at an angle of 30 degrees, those two millimeters are not enough anymore. So then you have to choose, do I pick the tip of the petals? Do I pick the middle? Or do I pick the end? Where am I going to have in focus? Because I just don't have enough to get it all. So you can choose to be very careful to always keep yourself perpendicular to the surface, in which case you'll get the most out of your depth of field. Or if you know that you're not going to get it all, then you have to start thinking artistically. So what do I want? Do I want out of focus, middle of flower, and then back to out of focus? Or do I want to focus on the tip and have the whole flower vanishing off into, into non-focusness? So you have to, you have to be very aware of the reality that you are actually fighting with depth of field in this one. And then, creatively decide do you minimize the problem by keeping yourself perpendicular or do you just embrace the fact that you have no depth of field and just pick an arty angle and just shoot knowing you're going to throw half the flare out of focus and do it anyway because you think it's going to look cool
2: i think i ended up with uh getting my my flowers out of focus and it didn't look cool.
1: Well, that's yeah, that's the hard part, right? <laughs> and I, I guess to some extent that's that's what Alison's fighting with as well, is that she's tried shallow depth of field, but it hasn't worked out. And every flower is different. Um, and depending on the shape of the flower, you may need to be very careful to figure out what to do. Um, the other thing then that I, I find very useful is the playing around with light. So flowers are usually growing in the wild, or at least the ones I photograph usually are. But if you're going out sort of in the late evening, you start to have shadows. And mm-hmm. what you, what I try to do whenever possible is find an example of the flower I want to shoot, where the flower is sticking up into the sun, but directly behind the flower is shadow. And then embrace the fact that our cameras have a smaller depth of field than our eyes and let that shadow go to black. And that really helps the flower to jump out because you've now just completely blackened... The background but you need, you need to be a little bit lucky and you need to sort of time it so that there are shadows and again you know it takes, takes a bit of effort uh, Anyone else have any thoughts? Or
2: Well no, I, I-, I
0: have a slightly different approach whenever okay. I, I shoot uh, flowers uh, my, the first thing I look at is the background I always want to make sure that the color of the background is different than the color of the flower Oh so already this way question. uh this way already the the flower stands out from the background. Yes. Um, my next thing that I look at is the light okay uh so you know if it's if it's a very flat light, if it's at noon or if it's if it's a bit of shadow, and based on that um I decide if I shoot from high angle low angle what kind of aperture I will set as well as, you know, if it's windy, if I need to get my shutter speed very fast or not. Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes if I see that, okay, the background is the same color as the flower, uh, if the light is really bad and I know that I will not go to jail for, uh, taking that flower and putting it somewhere else, I will just do it. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's your, you know, feel free to be creative. Um, uh, so I, I, sometimes I just, you know, pick that flower and I take it with put me it and, and I put it somewhere else and I take a picture. Um, uh, but I think this, this picture, I, I'm looking at what, um, I think was it a question from Allison. Mm. uh, what Allison uh, posted on the Google plus community, uh, this flower, I think is particularly challenging to be photographed because of its shape and, and color, it's yeah. not a typical flower that that you find with, with petals and that are round in a round shape. Um, so my my first thought would be to to focus when you when you photograph such a flower to focus on uh, the shape and its curves, um, especially if you have a possibility of getting you know maybe not necessarily macro photography but as close as possible and 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 focus on its shape and what kind of curves these petals have. Uh, so that's that's one of the advice I could give. Uh, when it comes to the pictures of the sunset, I think it would look really nice if uh, if Alison put the camera into manual exposure or uh, could play a bit with light because the camera, I guess, exposed for the sunset, making the... Uh, the The flower extremely dark, so mm. actually the flower it 's not visible it 's basically black and uh, and it 's a nice picture of the sunset, but the, the flower is not visible so here I would play either with with manual exposure or you know, with some you know white board to reflect the light or reflectors to give to give some uh, some extra light on on the flower
1: actually yeah give, if it's a sunset that means there has to be light so just bounce some of it back onto the flower with something um
2: but uh, in in Allison's case maybe it's also uh, a case of trying a different position because from what i can see most of them are are taken at at the level of the flower except one or two i think hmm. and in in my opinion the, the the one which attracts me the most are the two uh, which aren't really taken at the same level as the flower. The one is, is taken from above, and the other one is taken from uh, slightly below. And I think in some cases, it's a, you can get beautiful shots if you if you just lay down and shoot pictures from below a flower or uh, get a little bit higher, shoot from above the flower, and not always on, on the same uh, height as the flower itself.
1: Actually, that's something that Mark Polly does very well with the tulips. Uh, some of his shots are you know, of the tulips from beneath with, a, with the blue sky with white fluffy clouds above. Yeah. And it's very effective because you see nothing of the ground, you just see flowers and sky. And it's, no, Allison's in California, so blue sky she can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
2: when we were in, in France, I think two years ago, uh, we were in an area which had a lot of uh, sunflowers. And taking a picture of one sunflower is okay, but uh, at a certain point I climbed into a, a tree and then you had a complete view over the whole fields with all the sunflowers, which was quite beautiful as well. Yeah. So and sometimes it, it's it's just a matter of, of having another um, yeah, point of view, I think.
1: Yeah, point of view is definitely worth playing with. And for, for stuff like that where you have a lot of the same, if you can manage to get your depth of field so that you have one sharp and then this sort of sea of out-of-focus ones vanishing off into the distance, I mean, mm-hmm. daffodils can be quite good for that because you often have these massive crowds of daffodils. Uh, Sunflowers, of course, they're literally planted like that. I mean, it's fabulous when you see that. Um, Something else, actually, that just occurs to me, you know, Alison usually has blue sky, but actually, if you're going to be doing macro stuff, actually what you want is an overcast sky. uh, Because that gives you nice diffuse light rather than sharp light with harsh shadows, which which is one of those perverse things where you think, oh, I'm going to get much nicer nature shots if the sun is out. But actually for flowers and stuff, for macro, actually you may find you have better results either at, you know, when the sun is low in the sky in the evening or if there's cloudy sky and then you just have really diffuse light.
0: And I have one, one more thing to say. Okay. Uh, it doesn't correspond directly to Alison's question, but since macro has been mentioned so many times, uh, there is a comp- I think it's a Chinese company, uh, but th- actually their products seem of very good quality they have just released a very affordable manual focus macro lens. Um, the company is called Venus, V-E-N-U-S. And the, the lens they have, it's, it's a very specific lens because I believe the, uh, the, um, it's too, the, how is it called? Oh, I'm, I'm stuck right now, um. Bart, you said that your lens was. What my, um, factor? It's, oh,
1: it's a crop factor of 1.5. Well, the, 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 so it's a, the lens I have is an 18 to 250. So it's a super zoom, I guess, is, is what that counts as. Uh, yeah, I'm
0: missing the word right now. Anyway, it's, it's the lens they produce. First of all, it's very affordable. I think it's around $400. It's a manual focus. They produce it for Nikon, Canon, and I believe Sony. Uh, and it's magnification factor. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. It's I believe two to one, which is uh, you no know, that there are no uh, as far as I know there are no manufacturers producing such a factor. So it's a really really good macro lens. So if anyone is interested, I think that might be. Uh, A quite affordable option uh, to start playing with with Macro.
1: And did did you give a price there, approximately?
0: Uh, I think it's around $400 and as of next week, uh, a Lens Rental company in the US called Lens Rentals will have it in stock as of, I think, 27th of March.
1: Cool. That is definitely affordable as these things go. Did you want to give me the? Did you want to pop the link into the Skype chat, and I'll pop it into the show notes for people. Sure. Um, I just want to throw another suggestion into the mix for again some way to think differently about it. So normally, when you're doing a flower, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the flower to be the dominant thing in the picture, and you generally do that by zooming in, which means that the background is a blurred, and b, it's a small area that's been stretched out. And so the background, you tend to you want it to be not busy, you want it to be all of the same color, you want it to be as smooth as possible, and whatever the macro thing you're taking a picture of, like the flower, would stand out the best. And that's sort of the normal, quote-unquote, normal approach. But actually, you can do the opposite. Um, I had great fun when I first bought my wide-angle lens, trying to figure out all of the daft things you can do with a wide-angle lens that you wouldn't think of. And I discovered that the wide-angle lens I bought, which is a Sigma lens, is actually... In fact, it's exactly the lens that Ken said he had in his question. Um, It actually focuses quite close, even though it's a a wide-angle lens. And so if you stick a wide-angle lens right up to a flower to the very closest distance it will focus, you will get a big flower in the field of view of the photo. But instead of the background being a small thing in the distance that's been stretched to fill the whole background, you have the opposite effect, where the background is condensed... And you see the entire garden stretching out behind the flower, mm. and so you see the flower in its context instead of isolated. I wouldn't do it all the time, but it's certainly an interesting take on things. So I'll I'll, I'll pop a link into the show notes of an example of me playing around with it. Um, I was actually technically it's actually a picture of the butterfly, but it's sitting on a flower, so that the the concept holds. And it's a very different way of doing macro because you wouldn't normally think of using a wide-angle lens. But as I say, you can have all sorts of fun, you know, so change your focal length, change your angle to the flower, change the light. Actually, something else I meant to say. So, Conrad, you suggested that if nothing was right, you could take the flower and bring it somewhere else, which is obviously one way to solve the problem. But you could also bring along a sheet of coloured paper and provide your own background. Yes. So if you know that it's a you know, it's, it's a flower that will stand out nicely against blue, maybe bring along a blue sheet of paper and just drop that in behind the flare and then you can get your nice background without having to kill the flare.
0: You can also bring a white sheet of paper and, and use it as a reflector uh, to to put some extra light on the on flower, for example.
1: Yeah, so if you're in the California sun and it's about lunchtime, which means it's very, the sun is high in the sky and very bright, you're going to have really strong shadows. And that may not work well with a gentle delicate flower, because you probably want it to feel gentle and fluffy, rather than harsh and hard. And so if you take your sheet of paper and you fill in the shadows with reflected light, that will soften everything and make it look more fluffy. Well, not sure that's quite the right word, but you know
2: what I mean.
1: <laughs> any any other floral thoughts?
2: Mm, not really for me.
1: Okay, well, I think I'm I'm hoping Alison thinks that we've given her some things to play with. Um think about the background. Something I I like to do actually in, in flower shots is arrange it in such a way that I get lots of repeating flowers vanishing off into the background sort of out of focus but you know, obviously of the same colour. Um but that involves finding a place where you have lots of the same flower. And it's it's not always easy to get that, but if you know, the, these flowers are in bloom for quite a while, so maybe it's possible for Alison to find a place where she can find an angle on one and get it on its own, so that it, none of the other flowers in the background are touching it, and still have other birds of paradise vanishing off into the distance. Maybe asking for too much, but it's it's definitely something to play with is having a sort of a repetition going off into the background. Okay. Well, I think, unless someone else has something to throw in, I think I'm going to draw a line under it at this stage because we're at 50... Where's my call recorder window gone? We're at something. (laughs) This call has been going for some amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, we're at 44 minutes, so it's probably too late to start another question. So we'll draw a line under it here, and what I will say to listeners is if you would like to have us tackle a question of yours in a future show you can go to let's-talk.ie and then there's a button there to submit um, questions but also you can go straight to let's talk.ie forward slash photo queue and that will jump you straight to that page without having to click on a button um also i these shows are free for you to listen to and free for you to enjoy but i do have some bills associated with them and i'm trying to get to a stage where the show pays for itself so that it's not my own money that I'm pumping into it. And to that end, there's two large blue buttons over at let's-talk.ie in the sidebar. And they're called Support on Patreon and Donate via PayPal. So Patreon is actually, I think, the the, 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 the most efficient way of supporting the show. And the idea of Patreon is that you pledge a small amount per show, and assuming I get the shows out, then the at the end of the month that amount is debited from your credit card and then all of those small donations from lots and lots of people are pooled into one transfer from patreon to me which means that all of those fees you get for sending money via paypal and stuff they happen not on each individual contribution they happen once on the sum total of all the contributions so it's actually a very efficient way of getting small amounts of money to actually make a real impact for podcasters And uh, I do actually group, because of the way Patreon works, I do group the photography show and the Mac show together. So basically, I promise you that every month there will be two shows. So if you want to donate, you know, $2 a month, donate $1 per show, it will multiply by two and it will pop $2 at the end of the month. And that's that's sort of the idea. And you you can pledge basically whatever you think is an appropriate amount to pledge. There is, of course, also the PayPal button, which is a very good way of getting, you know, one-off donations that are a bit bigger than a few, you know, €2 or whatever. And the idea, you know, the thing is with PayPal fees is that the fee kind of is always approximately the same. And so if you send like a dollar, it's almost all fee. Whereas if you send $10, it's like almost all donation. So, it, you know, they're two different buttons for two different purposes that achieve two different aims. And so hopefully that is useful. Of course, the other way to support the show is to go to iTunes and say something nice. That is, that is also a very valuable support and doesn't cost anyone anything. Uh, thank you very much to the panel for joining us for today's show um let me see stefan do you want to say where people can find you online and where they can listen to more of you being
2: you yeah well if people want to get in touch with me they can find me uh on twitter uh, using my name uh, stefan Lesage, and uh, do you want on to Facebook. spell
1: that last bit for people
2: yeah it's uh
1: Excellent. And so and you're uh, Stefan Assange all over the place.
2: All over the place, Facebook, Twitter, uh, everywhere. And if you want to, to hear what we, uh, we, we talk about in our Dutch uh, tech podcast, then you can find us at uh, tech45.eu. Oh, very,
1: very inclusive of you to go with that .eu. And mm-hmm. I, I'm actually a regular listener. I love, I love getting my little dose of, of Dutch and Flemish that way. <laughs> good, and good. I, know, I, I, know, I get to do tech as well, so it's interesting. Uh, Conrad, where do you hang out on the internets?
0: I think the easiest way for the listeners is to find me on my website, which is k-o-n-r-a-d-d-w-o-j-a-k.com. Excellent.
1: Okay, well, folks, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, I'll just leave to say to the listeners, until next time, happy snapping.
0: To another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Are you a geek? I guess so. What do you mean you guess so? Prove your geek, Red.
1: I don't need to prove myself to you. I'm the new host of the geekiest show ever. We will see about that. Don't you just hate it when droids think they have all the control and don't know their role? You know, they forget that we can turn the power off. Oh no, you can't. Oh yes,
2: I can. Don't, please. I'll be
1: good. That's better. Nothing worse than artificial intelligence being, well, unintelligent. Head across to iTunes and subscribe to the Geekiest Show Ever podcast. The only show truly dedicated to geekery.